Force field is at 25% strength. Booster ignition is go. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Delphi Podcast. I'm Tom Shaughnessy, and I help lead Delphi Ventures, as well as host some of the most in-the-weeds and thought-provoking guests across crypto, spanning Layer 1s to DeFi, NFTs, and beyond. The goal is to have fun, but also to dive deep and offer foundational episodes on projects and founders. Also, check out our research on Delphi Digital or miss out on the most compelling research there is. It's up to you. As a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Delphi Ventures may hold tokens mentioned, so check out our transparency page in the show notes for more info. With that, let's dive in. See you guys on the other side. Auto sequence start in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Before we jump in, we want to thank Kava for making this episode possible. Kava is a cross-chain DeFi platform that gives you the ability to earn more by connecting the world's largest cryptocurrencies, ecosystems, and financial applications in one safe and seamless integration. We're excited for the upcoming launch of the Swap Protocol a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Swap will join the Kava protocol and Hard protocol as the next application built on the Kava platform. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Delphi podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy. I help lead Delphi Ventures and one of the hosts for the pod. For our second episode in our crypto VC series, I have on Jason Choi, who's a GP at the Spartan Group. Me and Jason go way back, one of my first friends in crypto. Jason, how's it going? Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me on the show again. Super excited to be here. Yeah, man. Super excited to have you. So Jason, let's start at the beginning, man. So you wake up at your day, a million ideas hit your table across Telegram, Twitter, analysts, bosses, whatever. How do you curate? How do you filter? How do you know where to spend your time on new plays? Yeah, it is a it is a pretty crazy industry to be in. So we try to have processes around it to to filter through a lot of the noise. I think at a high level, um, my process I like to think of it in in five steps. So the first screen that I usually do for investments or projects is usually a valuation screen. Um, I'm a big fan of the concept of a margin of safety. Um, I think generally, you know, the lower the price something is relative to others, the the less um, chance that it, it can go down more. Now, that's not obviously always true because of liquidity reasons, um, but that's generally a pretty good screen. So I, I typically just look through a list of projects and see if there's you know major price movements overnight or over the past month or so, and you know go on platforms like Token Terminal and look at different multiples um, and compare different metrics. And after the valuation screen, then uh, usually I'm left with a kind of subset of assets, and then we kind of go deeper into that. Um, and just to kind of touch on the other steps in the process a little bit, uh, we look into things like fundamentals, which is what the project is, what it's been doing, um, how its uh, user numbers, um, you know, trading volume, um, and if it's a say a boring a lending protocol, we look at its borrowing volumes over the past say you know, month or seven days. So metrics like that, anything that can be quantified, we consider it fundamentals. And then there are also the things that are more qualitative, so like team quality, um, you know, governance, engagement, and so on. Um, and then after that, we look into uh, the third step in the process, which is trend, right? What is the market favoring right now? So that's less important for our venture fund, um, but more important for our liquid fund, uh, where uh, we, we kind of trade in the secondary markets. So we kind of look at, okay, is it uh, is the market favoring DeFi right now? Or is it an NFT season? Or is the, uh, is the market finding interest in Solana projects? So that's number three. Um, and then the final two steps are uh, specific to that project. We look into whether there are any catalysts that would cause a re-rating in the project. And we also look into the risks of the project uh, in the short term and in the long term. So kind of just to sum it up, uh, I do a valuation screen first. Um, and then after that, I look into the specific fundamentals and then the trend. And after that, uh, if it looks like it could be a good investment, then we dive into the catalysts and the risks. Jason, you brought up a lot of good points there, and I'm glad we're diving right into it. But how do you, when you're looking at your valuation screen, I guess, whether it's on the VC side or whether it's on the liquid side, I'll let you take this either way you want. Um, when is something too good to be true? Like, you know, a five or 10 mil valuation VC private deal comes to your desk, or maybe the valuation of some project, like some DEX is just super low versus its peers. Generally, there's a reason for that. Either there's a lack of uptake, or maybe the competitors just have more traction or something like that. How do you like weigh the balance between a really attractive valuation, but maybe it's too good to be true. 
Yeah, that's a really good point because um, value trap is definitely real in in crypto. There are a lot of projects um, that consistently trade at pretty low multiples relative to their protocol revenues uh, that just kind of stay there. Um, so that that's why the the subsequent steps of the process is important, right? Looking at the fundamentals and trying to understand is the user number actually growing or the revenues actually growing as fast as the peer group in the industry. Um, now, on the venture side, for things that are pre-product, uh, usually it's very hard to find, you know, five to ten million dollar evaluation prices, uh, and most of that is because there's a lot more capital chasing um, projects than there are good founders. Um, so typically, if there's a very good project or a very quality team, the price tag is already bid up by a lot of funds in the space. Um, so usually, if there is a certain degree of quality to the project, the, the valuation is going to be a little tough, especially in term in, in, in this current market environment where these primary markets are still adjusting to the secondary market's reality. Um, but yeah, I think it all goes back to the fundamentals, right? You, you check whether for a live project, whether there's actual growing adoption and for a non-launch project, you look at uh, whether you want to be working with this team and whether you really believe in this team. Um, I, I think those are probably the two two major factors we look at. Really good points, Jason. And you're big on understanding the trends, making sure an investment plays into kind of that thesis. How do you think about trends in a multi-chain world, right? And you know, let's take let's say Uniswap for example, right? Today they launched on Optimism. Their concentrated liquidity pools are awesome. But when we think about other layer ones and where trading will happen, how do you think through investments on one protocol, but while keeping in mind other layer ones, other protocols, because the trend is obviously up, but there's other things to keep in mind, like cross-chain, other protocols, stuff like that. Yeah, so I think the trend is, um, so just to clarify, um, identifying a trend and kind of playing the trend doesn't mean we try to chase anything that's in vogue. Uh, it, it only informs me how aggressive I want to be deploying into something. So if the market is not favoring DeFi as it hasn't been in the past month or so, then maybe we have more time to accumulate names that we like at lower prices. Now, if this is back in, say, August 2020, when the entire market is re-rating DeFi daily, then we want to be very aggressive in sizing up the names that we like because the prices will run away from us. In a multi-chain perspective, I don't know if I'll categorize, I, I don't know if that's a separate conversation than um, just kind of identifying trends in general, because if you recall, uh, there was a there there was a period in time earlier this year where a lot of the Solana projects were rated up as well. So the way we kind of analyze multi-chain in the context of these trends is that it's just another narrative for, for the market to bid up. Now, on the venture side, when we look on a five, 10-year horizon, uh, we're quite bullish on multi-chain reality. So we do allocate a lot of time to looking at other chains as well. Um, but uh, because the adoption and the infrastructure on a lot of these other chains are still relatively early compared to Ethereum, we do require a little bit of uh, discount on the valuation compared to you know, comparable projects in Ethereum when we deploy. Yeah, my, my next question for you is going to be kind of along those lines. Like, are you focused on any specific layer one? Are you open to multi-chain world? But it sounds to me like you guys are pretty open to investing across the whole, whole realm. Yeah, we're, we're very product-driven um, investors. So I think we're, I, I like to think that we're users first and investors second. We really try to use everything that's out there and test out everything that's out there. Um, so for us, a lot of the things that work best now are things that are on Ethereum, um, projects that have been live for, for a while. Um, so that's where we kind of tend to gravitate and spend a lot of our time. But there's also a lot of interesting things happening on uh, Solana and for a while, BSC, even though we haven't done a lot of you know, venture investments there. Um, so we're, we're definitely keeping an eye on different ecosystems. It kind of feels like the multi-chain world today is being welcomed, whereas Back, you know, when we first both of us got started, it was you know Bitcoin versus Ethereum, and it was very hostile. Are you kind of seeing that dichotomy too, or do you think it's still kind of hostile? Yeah, I think it depends on who you speak with. There's certainly always a degree of animosity with uh, early adopters of any any chain. There's a certain degree of of uh, defen- defensiveness that people feel about their about their investments, about communities that they're aligned with early on, but. You know, even from day one, I've kind of thought of chains like Solana, for instance, as a layer two to Ethereum, where there are specific use cases that require, you know, very performant blockchains, and um, and people are willing to, you know, um, compromise to certain trade-offs. 
that could be delegated to Solana. And if you look at the way that um, chains like Polygon have taken off, you know, a lot of people say that Polygon is layer two, but if you look at their their construction, it's it's really um, their own layer one. Um, so, uh, I, 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 but still, it's it's kind of construed as very um, value additive to Ethereum and complementary to Ethereum, and that's kind of how I view a lot of these different layer ones. Um, I feel like Ethereum has reached a certain critical mass where it's very hard to topple its network effects over the coming years. Um, so a lot of the layer ones that come, are coming to market now or are maturing right now uh, will probably just end up being kind of de facto layer twos for Ethereum. At least that, that's our current, current working hypothesis and seems like it's, it's working true so far. That's, that's an interesting point. Are, are there any layer ones that you would just straight up stay away from at this point? Or do you think that any of them potentially have a chance? Yeah, so because we're kind of fundamentals driven investors first, so we try to stay away from anything that doesn't have adoption. Um, so a lot of ghost chains that are uh, pushing out empty blocks, uh, a lot of teams that are, or, or even chains that are basically just um, copying code from Ethereum and you know revitalizing certain Ponzi's. Um, so I think BSE is really interesting. For instance, uh, I think a lot of retailers really love it, and the fees are low enough to attract a lot of retailers. But in terms of whether it has a long-term moat um, for adoption, that's something that we're still trying to think about. Um, but because there is actual adoption there, there's billions of dollars deployed there. That's something that we cannot ignore. Um, now, for some of the older chains, not to name specific names, but back in 2017, there were a lot of layer ones that were um, that raised an incredible amount of money that really didn't amount to anything or anything that's proportional to the amount of money that they have raised, uh, even after you know three, four years. So those chains we try to stay completely away from. EOS, Cardano. I'm happy to name them. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, you <said> it. <laughs> Don't worry, man. Um, so I'll, I'll play devil's advocate for a second. So something like, uh, just to give like an illustrative example for everyone, like let's take Binance Chain, for example. Um, there's obviously a lot of users, a lot of capital, but they're running into, or they will run into centralization risks, state bloat, things like this. How do you make venture bets on something that has so much adoption right now, but potentially has kind of clear problems down the road? Like, how do you weigh those differences, whether it be a venture bet or let's say a liquid bet? Yeah, so we haven't really made any major venture bets in the BSC ecosystem. And I think precisely because of that. Um, And I think the decision process for venture and liquid is very, very different. Um, So as I said, I think that the the kind of uh, third step in our process, which is looking at the trend, is very important for the liquid fund. So uh, in the, I think, one or two months where BSC was attracting uh, a significant amount of TVL and a lot of the BSC projects were getting re-rated um, and projects like PancakeSwap were getting um, you know, very attractive annualized revenues, that's when we want to um, look into these projects from the liquid fund perspective. But for the venture fund perspective, we really need to have conviction that these projects will be around in five years because that's the fund life. Um, so in that case, we will care a lot more about you know, security trade-offs and things like state bloat, as you mentioned. But in the short term, uh, we, kind of, we, we care more about quantifiable adoption, um, at least for the liquid side. Now, it's, it's really cool that you have both the venture fund and the liquid fund because it, um, it makes like a good dichotomy between how you look at things. Yeah, it, it is a challenge. Um, so we started as a liquid fund back in 2018, as you recall. Um, and I think over time, we just found ourselves spending so much time on DeFi and we're able to kind of get the conviction that, okay, in the long term, this is going to be around and we want to you know, help build this world. So after two years of, of investing out of the liquid fund, we decided to start that um, venture fund um, and we launched that a month ago. So we're pretty excited about that. That's awesome, man. Yeah, no, congrats all around. Um, and I guess shifting gears a little bit, um, I think we're both of the opinion that a community for a project is extremely important, but it's also something that's very hard to measure. It's hard to know if people are really here to stay or here to make money. It's hard to know like how large the community should be depending on the state of the project. How do you dive into a project and say, hey, this project has a killer community. If it's a you know venture deal, liquid deal, I'll, I'll let you take either side. Um, but would love to kind of get how you get sold on whether or not a project has a killer community. Yeah, so I think a community is often two-sided, right? You need the team itself to be engaged, and you also need uh, the users themselves to be engaged. So a, a good kind of leading sign is to see how active uh, the founders actually are on community channels. 
So one of the recent investments that we made, uh, which is kind of, you can think of it kind of like a zapper, um, but for kind of Asia audiences, it's called Apeboard. Um, it's built by a former engineer from Alpha Finance. Um, so they, so one of the kind of signs that was really reassuring to us is kind of going on the Telegram group and seeing the founder just answering uh, product feature requests uh, daily and then shipping these things out almost immediately. So that type of responsiveness uh, is required, at least in early stages of a project, to really generate that engagement because users are not just going to suddenly get excited about the product if the team itself doesn't seem like they're excited uh, about what users want and about the product. Um, and on the other side, obviously, looking at how engaged the users actually are, one great example I'd love to use is uh, Synthetics. Um, so back in the bear market in 2018, Synthetic Discord was one of the most active discords in all of crypto. Um, and you can see the quality of conversation on there is also you know, very different from that of a lot of the other groups, where there are a lot of retailers just asking, you know, when token, when moon, when listing. Um, you know, the Synthetics guys were talking about, okay, what are the trade-offs for, for liquidity providers here? Um, so as a lurker in those groups, that's something that you'd like to see as well. But obviously, that, that's a little bit harder for you know, pre-product projects. So you kind of need to take more of a focus on the team itself for those type of bets. It's a really good point. Now, synthetics comes up often. I remember it. Um, and, and that's a really good point on how active their community was in a bear market. I guess the other side of this, though, is you know, how do you view the trade-off between a founder that's supposed to ship, ship, ship and be out here in the wild. And then eventually the community taking over or eventually that founder going away. Like how do you view or how do you get comfortable with the project where the community starts to take over? And, you know, synthetics is a good example where King kind of, you know, left, came back a little bit. Um, but I don't think we've actually really seen that happen yet, but it is the goal to eventually decentralize this project to the community. Yeah, it, it is. A kind of weird situation because um, if you have to explain to your LPs, hey, we're investing in a project that you know has no leads. <laughs> it's it's run by you know a random group of people around the world. It's a little you know it it it's a it's definitely a new conversation that uh, I think a lot of investors outside of crypto may not be used to. Um, so how do we get comfortable with that? I think it comes back to the fundamentals, right? So uh, progressive decentralization is something that all projects should strive towards. Um, but I'm also of the opinion that they shouldn't strive towards it too early on. Just because you ship a product and bring it to the wild doesn't mean the world will kind of just uh, gravitate to your product. Uh, it needs a lot of handholding in the early years. It's just like any startup, any company, uh, you shouldn't seek to decentralize too early on. And I, I know that might not be a popular opinion, but I do think that if, if you look at the most successful projects, you know none of them are community run by day one. Um, even for Uniswap, the largest DEX today, a lot of the governance process was quite centralized in the early uh, in the early days because the quorum required to actually vote on proposals was incredibly high. So it actually, uh, you know, as a small retail guy, um, you're you're really not able to you know sway sway the vote in any way. Um, so there are a lot of de facto centralization that I think is necessary in the early days of a project. And most projects today in DeFi should not be decentralizing so fast uh, in terms of you know their their uh, in terms of you know facing out their team, facing out the foundation, there are only a few projects that I can think of that are maybe mature enough to do this. You know, Maker's one of them, uh, maybe Synthetics, but you know, just given that Uniswap just launched V3, I don't, I don't even think a project as mature as Uniswap should be looking to completely face out the team just yet. Do you think it's actually a reality though? Like, do you think that these projects will actually be able to decentralize the community? Because I think it's inevitable, but I. I don't, I think it's 10 years away. I like, I don't think we're anywhere close to like, I mean, like DAOs are awesome, but at the end of the day, most projects have a leader, whether we kind of admit it or not. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I, I think it's definitely on the longer time frame, and that's what I personally prefer as well. But I guess there's also different models of decentralization. You could kind of face out the LLC or the nonprofit entity and still have the DAO, you know, pay the same salary to the same group of people that were working on the project. So I guess it really comes down to what we mean by decentralization. I think when I talk about decentralization, I'm more thinking about the governance perspective. Kind of, uh, I, I think early on, the team who has built a product knows what's best for the project. So I actually trust the team to make a lot of the bigger decisions early on than, say, just putting everything to a community vote. No, I'm with you there. I, I totally agree. And I, I, I may have misspoke. 10 years is probably too long, um, but we'll, we'll see what happens. It's definitely a spectrum. 
And going back to the founders, I think me and you both agree that the founding team is the most important. They're the ones driving the project. They're here. They're up all night. The space was really fast. We need good stewards. What, if you can give me an example, what's a project team that you met where on the first call you knew right away that you wanted to invest? And, you know, obviously it's to do more due diligence, but like, what did they say? What got you comfortable? Why were you so enthused with the project and the team? Yeah. So um, I guess this is more on the venture side, right? Yeah. So on, on the venture side, uh, one project that I, I love to kind of talk about a lot is Alpha Finance. Um, as you know, I'm a huge fan of their team. And I think on the first call, uh, it's, it's I guess it kind of moving away from the, um, the community point a bit. It, it was less about uh, the community because it was there was no community in the beginning. Uh, this was a pre-product project, um, you know, seed round. Um, but speaking with the founders, you immediately get a sense that, okay, they know exactly uh, what they are doing. That they know what the market wants. Um, and I think one thing that is often overlooked is market timing as well. Um, so Alpha was building a leveraged yield farming product at a time when yield farming was you know, the, the drawing the most interest from users. Um, so that's not the only product they have, as you know, um, but kind of seeing seeing how well they understood the market at that time and uh, seeing the product that they prioritized and seeing the roadmap uh, really gave me a sense that, okay, these guys are not just product guys, but they also have great market timing sense. I mean, obviously looking at the team background, uh, where they came from before, uh, some of them have incredibly technical backgrounds. The CTO and Apoon, you know, won a couple of uh, math Olympiads globally. Um, so that that's something that you always like to see in your technical founders. And obviously Tasha also came from uh, one of the more kind of successful Oracle projects outside of Chainlink as well. So yeah, so those are, it, it's a little bit of, it's more of a qualitative thing. It's less analytical than say, hey, we have a framework, we're going to score the team and all that. It's more of a qualitative thing that um, that gets kind of more refined over time as you speak to more teams and you you, ha- you have more feedback loops from projects you invested in. No, I'm with you there. Now, Alpha is a holding of ours. Um, I'm a huge fan of Tasha and Nipun. I mean, building off your example, I mean, one of the things that got me so happy and I guess enthused with Tasha was just how organized they were, right? Every mm-hmm. call, there's a presentation, every call, they're professional. If there's a problem, they're professional. Like it's just, uh, and they're always shipping, like, and they're always solving niches in the market. Um, it definitely set the bar kind of high. Um, so too bad for new projects being compared to them, <laughs> but, yeah. um, switching gears a little bit, is there anything that a founder can do other than meeting this like high bar on a call that would totally turn you off? Like instant red flags, things you see that you just don't like with a founder or you think that are traits that may lead them to not be successful? Yeah. So when we invest in founders, we want to invest in people who are obsessed, right? People who we know will stick around in a bear market because as you know, these bear markets can get pretty brutal. We can see you know 99% drawdowns and sometimes it can last years. So um, seeing founders that are that, that we think are able to kind of grind it out in those years is uh, is incredibly important. So a few signs we look for are uh, people who have a history in crypto, right? People who are not just starting projects because something is hot. And that, that that's a very nuanced point because how do you differentiate between good market timing versus opportunism? So that that that's really a judgment call. Um, another sign I think is, I I think there is a time and place for community rounds. So especially for, for projects that really require a lot of community input. So like Syndicate DAO, for instance, they raised from, I think, over 100 angels. And before that, they raised a more concentrated round from funds. So I'm personally an angel in Syndicate DAO. And I'm comfortable with that because obviously Ian has an incredible track record in this space. And also because of the nature of the project, as a community DAO, they, they, uh, the community round makes a lot of sense. But for most projects raising from you know 100 funds or even 50 funds in the same round, it doesn't really make sense to me. Um, and usually projects do that because they want the bragging rights to say, hey, all of these funds investing in us. But if you look at the skin in the game each fund has, they probably have you know, 10, 50K in a project. And that's usually not such a good um, sign. It's not necessarily you know, a, a death knell for a project, but it's reflective of... Um, I think a lack of thoughtfulness in in finding partners you want to work with, and number three, I think is just the more obvious things, right? If the if the founders were involved in scams before, or or have been hopping from project to project, that's usually a sign that you know we don't want to get involved too. No, no, those are those are great counterpoints. Yeah, no, I'm a, a huge fan of Syndicate too. We're investors. We run our NFT fund on it. Um, team is insanely impressive, and I agree with you on the community round aspect. 
what, one of my questions for you, just building off that is just for the, those that are investing in liquid markets, maybe not the VC side, I guess, what are red flags that these people can look for that may not have access to a call with founders or, you know, may have to rely on say Twitter and medium and discord. What can they look for that, you know, that may turn them off or that they should stay away from if they don't have access to that team call? Yeah. So it really, really depends on project from project. Um, there are some teams that over-communicate and over-market, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know they're bad projects. They're just here to you know shield their tokens or whatever. I think a few red flags for people who are you know who don't have access to the team and uh, may not be technical, so they can't be auditing the code, is just to go back to the fundamentals. Right. Um, I think the longer a project has been around, um, the less chance that it has that it is probably a rug pull. Um, so things that we try to stay away from, uh, you know, uh, incita- uh, you know, short-term forks on random chains that are accruing billions of dollars in TVL. Um, so things like Iron Finance, you know, I, I personally participated in the yield farming from a personal capacity, just just for fun, just to kind of uh, you know understand how it works. But uh, we all we also knew how it turned out, right? Um, this is one of the more speculative projects out there that basically dropped by ninety nine percent. So we discussed this on, on my podcast as well. But you, you know, it's it's projects like that, um, you know, low effort forks and you know meme coins that uh, we can't really justify investing in. Um, and I think a, a good kind of mental framework is obviously we're not going to put the entire fund in one trade, but a good mental framework I like to use is: Am I willing to put in you know hundred percent of my capital in this project? And if not, why not? And usually that's when you find out um, the red flags about a project. Yeah, I was going to ask for. For the retail side or the public investing side that obviously don't run a VC fund or, or a liquid fund, I was going to ask your thoughts on like where people should draw the line aping into new plays, right? Like you just opine that like low effort forks, you know, copycat projects are, are a joke. And I, I totally agree with you. But where do you draw the line between, you know, hey, I could make money here, but if something is the opposite of a low effort fork, let's say Galaxy Brain, it may take time to understand that project to really get a handle on it. Like, where do you draw the conviction line on, you know, having a retail user just aping into something versus understanding it? It's a hard spectrum. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it really always comes back to the team. It, it's a boring answer because every time you ask, you know, a VC what they're looking into, it's always the team, but there's a reason why they look into that. Um, so I think a lot of yield farms were around back in August, 2020, and a lot of them obviously failed, you know, things like uh, those food coins like kimchi, hot dog, none of those things are around anymore. But you know, for a while, those were really profitable. So uh, from an investment perspective, you know, you really look into the people behind the team. Now for anonymous projects, it's a little bit harder, but you know, one of the earlier yield farms like Wyern, um, just looking at the history of um, the founder, AC, you can know that, okay, this, this, this person is legit. This person has been in the space for a long time. He has been building products a lot and um, you know, it, it's really small things like that, that that tells you, okay, there's probably lower risk that this is a scam or a rug pull. Um, but generally, it's, uh, it, I think rug pulls are kind of like pornography, right? You know what, you know it when you see it. Um, if, if it's a food coin, if it's an anonymous team and it's offering, you know, 4,000% APY, you know, it's probably not sustainable. So we try to stay away from those things. No, I'm with you there. And I guess, for the retail audience, like let's say that yield farming eventually becomes legitimate. I mean, one of the only, uh, and, and it already is legitimate, but I mean, we get away from the scams, we mature as an industry. One of the only opportunities to invest at, say, low market cap uh, valuations for public is generally during a bear market. How do you, or what conviction would you offer people to get into a 10, 20, $50 million project in liquid markets? during say a bear market, because that's when you want to build positions. That's when you want to attract the teams. You gave a great example on synthetics, but it's hard to build that conviction, especially in smaller projects during tough times. Yeah. So um, that that's why that's why the team element was so important, right? Kind of understanding which teams will really be there to ship new features and build products when there is a bear market. But I think to have that conviction, uh, it's also harder than just investing in a bull market where any low valuation coin could potentially a rally. Um, so that's when you really need to have you know a long-term thesis because if you look at past bear markets, 
Now, I, I do think the bear markets should get more compressed as there's more capital coming in. But if you look at the past bear markets, we're talking about three, four years of you know sideways or downtrends. Um, so you really need to have a view beyond three, four years. You really need to know, okay, this is where I think the world is heading in five, 10 years. And you invest according to that. And without that kind of baseline, that North Star, it's very, very hard to have any type of conviction in any project because you know if it drops more... Uh, 50% again, then you don't know if I should be accumulating more or should I be you know, stopped out of the position. So generally in a bear market, um, I think people should adopt a, and not financial advice, but people should adopt a more kind of venture mentality where they look much longer term than say, hey, what is a good trade right now? No, I, I totally agree with you, man. And the other thing I want to talk to you about was just you know, building up the conviction in a project is very hard especially when you want to say, concentrate your investments, because in my opinion, concentrating investments is, is what will change your life and, and diversifying kind of hurts that at, when you have small amounts of money. But I'm trying to figure out what do you think the best way is to gain conviction in a project beyond the team? Like, you know, you could pick any project you want in your portfolio or your PA, but is it, you know, becoming a subject matter expert? Is it using the product? Is it grilling the founders on discord? Like, how do you get the conviction to put 50% of your personal money in something? Yeah, this is this is a topic I love discussing. And I was looking into a lot of you know, TradFi investors about how they think about this. And what I thought was really interesting was um, you know, a lot of fundamental investors like Buffett, they would or value investors like Buffett, they would really know the insights out of a company. They really understand where the value is coming from. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have guys like Soros who try to do the minimum amount of work, but they size like a madman. They put you know maybe five x the fund <laughs> to short the pound. Yep. Um, so it, it's a very it, it's a very nuanced line. I think uh, you know in terms of how to build conviction, it comes back to that five step process. Um, if you know the more boxes we can check, the, the higher conviction we can get. So if it has a reasonable valuation, uh, if we think that. On you know a long time frame, it, it it's in a favorable trend. Uh, the fundamentals are very clear. If there's very, uh, especially if there's very clear catalysts and you know very defined risks, if all these five boxes are checked, then you know I'm very willing to to size quite big on it. Um, now, obviously, there's risk controls as well. Uh, if you're managing outside capital, um, oftentimes you can't put more than X percent of you know of the fund in a certain position, and that's for just a risk management thing. But generally, uh, it comes back to that framework. The more boxes we check, the higher the conviction we have. If you're a retail investor in crypto or you know somebody on crypto Twitter and you're getting involved in crypto, would you promote to them to be concentrated in their investments? Or would you promote to them to diversify? I'm, I'm trying to figure out the right balance for people. I just, you know, obviously like straight up gambling is dumb, but you know, I've always thought like diversifying as you learn and then concentrating on your winners is usually the way to win. But what's your take on that for everyone? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't promote any any financial advice, but I think in terms of frameworks that people can use, it really depends on your risk preference. So it, it depends on how much drawdown you're willing to to kind of uh, I guess stomach, and uh, how much upside you're targeting. Now, if you're diversified, if you're holding a portfolio of uh, you know 50 assets, maybe it still works out because of how correlated crypto is. Um, but like you said, I, I think. A general rule of thumb is concentrate to build wealth and just uh, diversify to protect capital. I think it's a little bit more nuanced in crypto because correlations are so high. If you diversify within crypto, it still might not do that well of a job in in, the, in protecting your capital. Um, so if you're going to be taking on such high correlation risk anyway, and everything is, um, you know, at least in the short term, a bet on beta. Then it makes more sense to me to be concentrated on specific projects that you actually have conviction in, that you're willing to, you know, build bigger size on if prices do begin to fall. Um, but that that's kind of my my personal my personal framework. And I know you know a lot of people favor maybe a larger portfolio of you know many more positions. No, no, having a, a framework depending on the person makes a lot of sense. And I guess my other question as a comparison to that is. You know, I'm always seeing people on Telegram. Usually, when markets start to turn a bit, everyone's like, "Hey, what's your cash position? You know, is it five percent, ten percent, twenty percent?" I would love to get your take on directionally. You know, what you like to have as a cash percentage. I mean, whether it's for the fund or whether it's for a PA, which which may apply to more people. But you know, I've always kept personally a very low cash position because crypto is so risk on. I'd rather not lose out on a couple, you know, multiples and then just sell out on the next 20, 30 percent dip. You know, I'd rather not miss the bull run, but I'm wondering your take there. 
Yeah, so it depends on which phase of the cycle we're in. So I'd like to categorize, um, you know, crypt- crypto markets are incredibly cyclical because um, there's no strong consensus evaluation frameworks yet. So a lot of um, the assets that are traded are still highly, highly speculative. I think that's going to change, but that might be a long process. Um, so there's the early growth phase where, you know, things are being re-rated very slowly, but fundamentals are improving. Um, so this kind of reminds me of my bet on Kyber, my pair trade on Kyber versus zero X. I think this was back in 2019 and it took six months for that trade to play out. And so that was a growth phase. And then you have the euphoric phase where everything's just going vertical. So that was DeFi summer that lasted for two months. Um, and then after that, you have to blow off top where, you know, a lot of the euphoria is immediately subsided. There's some disbelief. And then finally, you have the decline where you just enter kind of a long period of chop. And the decline phase is interesting because a lot of people in their minds, when they think about a bear market, they think, oh, it's just going to be going down for three years. But the previous bear market actually spent 60% of its time going up. So it's a very hard market to trade. I try to focus on you know accumulating positions that I like and focus on the fundamentals and not trade every single move. And so going back to your question, you know, how much cash position should I should I keep to, or, or I like to keep? Uh, it depends on which part of the cycle. Now, if we're in a euphoric cycle, I like to kind of gradually take more to cash the higher we go. In a growth phase, I want to be fully deployed and sometimes even levered. Now, obviously, in a blow-off top, the the um, the wish or the, or the goal is that you're going to be uh, you know net short into it or even you know completely cash into it. But you know, in reality, it's very very hard to do. So you just hope that you're not max risk um, when the markets do blow off. And usually euphoria, you know, euphoria, top of euphoria signs are pretty easy to predict, but, uh, you know, market bottoming is much harder to predict. Um, So I try to, you know, not deploy all of my cash very quickly as the markets decline, because there's often, you know, a little bit of leeway in terms of how far I can go. So yeah, again, it's long, long story short, depends on, you know, which phase of the cycle I think we're in. So you mentioned like that blow off top idea. And I mean, you and I have seen it a couple of times, like we've been through a couple cycles here. It's really hard to, I, I guess, when you're in that blow off top, like when Bitcoin just hit 60K or you know wherever we topped out at, everyone knows like we're there, right? But nobody has the conviction to really, or not many people have the conviction to take money off the table because they don't know where it's going to end. You know, maybe they don't want to pay taxes just for the you know prices to come back in three months, right? How do you take chips off the table? How do you realize we're in a blow off top? And how do you kind of check yourself when? you know, the community at large is like bull market risk on? Yeah. So um, I think generally signs of euphoria are easy to spot. The difficult thing is knowing exactly when it tops. So uh, I don't think there is a way to top any type of market top. So we try not to, we, we try to stay out of the business of prediction and we try to stick to investing. And I think in, in terms of, you know, how we think about taking cash off, uh, taking kind of money off the table, it really comes down to uh, the risk reward ratio, right? So if we think Bitcoin can go up to, you know, 70K, but the downside here is to 30K, then, you know, the risk reward favors us being less risk on. Um, so it's important to keep in mind, you know, how much more upside do you think there is versus how much downside there is? I think people tend to just think about the upside in a euphoric market and forget the downside. So they think, okay, maybe if maybe it does this or maybe it does that, and they try to squeeze everything out of the lemon, right? So that that's one of the personal reminders that I give myself the most is, you know, squeeze mo- squeeze most of the juice out of the lemon, but don't try to squeeze all of it, um, because that's when you get into trouble. No, I'm, I'm with you there, man. That, that's that's a really good point. And I mean, let's switch gears to some fun stuff. I mean, we all have mentors, people we look up to people we learn from. I'd love to hear from you, you know, the best advice you've been given, whether it's life advice, whether it's crypto advice or anything that's helped you along your journey. And it could be multiple people, uh, you know, multiple pieces of advice, but would love for the listeners to hear that. Yeah. My, my favorite piece of advice is actually don't take advice from others because it's, it's so, t- <laughs> because it's so tailored to their personal experiences. Right. But, um, I think more actionable things in crypto is, uh, you know, having some skin in the game, for instance, uh, I, I think my experience in crypto is much, much more different uh, when it was back in 2016, when I was just kind of reading up on stuff versus after I've actually put some capital in Ethereum, uh, you're actually much more motivated to to kind of learn about it. So I think a general advice for, for crypto people, you know, create incentives for yourselves um, to, to learn about the space, to get deeper into the space. What would, what are the wrong incentives to you? Like when you look at a project or you look at a person like 
what's enough? Like, do you ask them like, Hey, are you incentivized enough? Or, you know, do you look at their specific token allocation? Like what makes you can convince that a founder or a driving person has the right incentives? Yeah. Um, I guess for a founder, it depends on how much allocation they get. And, you know, it, it, it all comes down to incentive alignment. I think for, for projects, you want to see a longer kind of vesting periods for founders, uh, you know, years of uh, years of vesting period. You don't want to see any founder allocation that unlocks like 25% at listing. That That's like a red flag. Red flag. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So long vesting periods um, for, for founders. Uh, I think in a fund perspective, you want to reward performance, right? People who are bringing in deals, people who are working closely with portfolio companies, people who are consistently pitching profitable ideas, you want to reward them a bit more. Yeah, uh, I, I think generally it's it, it de- depends on the situation. I'm with you there. Now, fund-wide, fund-wide incentives make a lot of sense and, and project incentives make sense. Is there anything for a team, you know, venture deal, liquid play, whatever, is there anything that um, are, or are there any incentives beyond money that leads you to really want to invest in something? Like when I look at Vitalik, I know he's here to build, right? When I look at Kane, I know he's here to build. Seth from Zapper, like Carson from Tokamak. Like I know these guys are here. It doesn't really matter to me if they have, you know, plus or minus a percent of the, of the project. What do you look for beyond money that gets you um, aligned? Yeah, I think people who have uh, a long-term view on the space, and usually that that... That comes across very obviously, right? So sometimes founders that are in the space for years already, that means they actually have a bullish view in the space. Um, so if you have kind of more opportunistic folks, I think especially this cycle, there's a lot of folks from traditional finance that are just coming over. You know, a lot of them are earnest and building, you know, very sound products. But a lot of them that we speak with also don't have much of an idea what's happening in DeFi. They just kind of see, okay, Uniswap, you know, their, their XYK model is so stupid. We're going to make more complex market makers that, you know, resemble TradFi. And they completely fail because they completely fail to understand what, what people in crypto care about and where users are. So uh, I think opportunism is also quite easy to spot. So that's something that we're always keeping an eye out for. It's a really good point. I mean, in my history of crypto, whenever I see something catering to the traditional world, like, you know, permission blockchains and 2017, 2018, I laughed. I mean, now I'm, you know, changing a bit because like with the NFT movement and gaming, like we have real ways to target, you know, the traditional world with real, with the real aspects of crypto, like decentralization and ownership and stuff like that. So it's interesting that you bring that up. I'd love to kind of dive into a couple examples of you know, maybe a biggest miss on your part, maybe a biggest loss. Um, I have more than I can count, but I would love to kind of learn, you know, what you think your biggest miss was, but more importantly, you know, what you learned from it to make sure that I guess it doesn't happen again. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time thinking about my losses rather than my wins um, because the losses could be pretty significant, right? The, The misses can be pretty significant. So the biggest miss I'd say in my career was passing on the FTX seed round. Um, so I had the opportunity to meet Sam and his team when they first came to Asia in Macau. And um, back then they were you know, Alameda Research and they were building this exchange. And my initial thought was, okay, this is quite interesting that you have a market maker um, behind their own exchange. I haven't seen this model before. I'm quite unfamiliar with it. Don't feel comf- comfortable investing. Um, so we passed on it. Um, and obviously, uh, now FTX is one of the fastest growing exchanges and one of the larger exchanges in the world. Um, so that was a huge miss on our part. Um, so I think the lesson there is um, don't dismiss things too quickly, uh, but you have to balance that with um, kind of not being too open-minded as well. I think a, a general rule of thumb that I'd like to make is when I speak with a founder, you always assume that they're right about their thesis. You assume that they've spent enough time uh, in this thesis to at least have a better idea about it than you do, um, but you question their timing. Um, so maybe um, you know, maybe FTX at that time, uh, maybe it was a bit early, um, but you know, two years later, it's the largest exchange. Um, so I, I I think that that advice came from uh, uh, Mark Andreessen. I'm not sure, but uh, that's something that I found to be really useful. Oh, that's incredible! I. I love that candid take, and I've heard that multiple times. Um, I'm pretty sure Arthur just said it on the first episode too. Um, <laughs> just just to push back a bit, just to to better understand. I mean, when you meet somebody like Sam of an FTX back then, obviously the idea it, it could be hard to get into. I totally understand where you're coming from, but did you get the sense from Sam that 
this is a really smart fucking guy who's driven. Like I always get that sense from him, but like, we're like, if you meet him and you get that sense, but you also pass, does it go against, or does it violate kind of the investing in founders kind of idea? Like, where's that line drawn? Yeah, I think back then, um, so back then we didn't have a venture fund. Um, so we would be investing, you know, as a side pocket in the liquid fund. So I think with the liquid fund, uh, we were very conditioned to think from a fundamentals lens, kind of looking at revenue numbers, looking at metrics. Um, and I think less, um, less conditioned to think from a venture lens that we've developed in the past, you know, three, four years um, since, since then. So I think that that was one of the mistakes is kind of uh, not having any fundamentals to fall back on and really just looking at the founder. But usually in venture, that's actually the most important thing. That's the thing that 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 you should be looking at. And I think we failed to recognize that. And we we let our kind of uh, lack of comfort with the unique design, uh, the unique relationship between the market maker and the exchange get in the way. And uh, we failed to recognize that, okay, sometimes maybe just betting on the team is is enough. And And we've learned a lesson and we're we're definitely taking a lesson to heart with how we're deploying a venture fund now. That's awesome, Jason. No, I appreciate it. And I, I mean, your, your answer makes complete sense. I mean, when you're running a liquid fund, it's just structurally harder to do VC deals and you're just not looking through that lens. So it kind of makes sense on, on why that was passed on that. And I guess switching gears a bit, I'd like to talk about maybe, you know, a biggest winner for you. And I, I don't just mean like, you know, money or percent. I mean, something that gave you a sense of accomplishment, something that you researched and, you know, maybe people were against you on it, or maybe you had a unique thesis. I'd love to kind of get into that and, you know, why you had such a sense of accomplishment from this one. Yeah. So I think one of the earlier bets, so there's quite a few DeFi bets that we made quite early on. Um, one that we made um, was Kyber back in 2019. Uh, I noticed that the revenues generated by Kyber were a fraction um, that of uh, no, we're, we're actually on par with zero X, but the valuation was a fraction of zero X, and there was a tokenomics design on the horizon as a catalyst to um, contribute to that re-rating. So this is a very kind of fundamentals-driven framework for investing that was not very popular, I think, back in 2019. Um, so when we made this bet, uh, it, it's not just so much a bet on Kyber itself, but also a bet that in fundamental investing will be important, uh, will be relevant. And when it finally played out six months later, I think that was, it wasn't the biggest win we've had by far, but I think it was, you know, a validation that, okay, looking at fundamentals and and investing solely based on fundamentals is something that could actually work. Um, and that wasn't very clear back in 2019. You know, we didn't have token terminal or anything like that. Uh, that's that's widely used today. We didn't have Dune Analytics back then to look at kind of revenue numbers. Um, but I do think that that's the direction we're heading. And that's a, that's a pretty satisfying kind of validation of that idea. That's, that's awesome, man. No, you're totally right. It was so hard to find data back then. I mean, it was, it was impossible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, the, the main data point I had back then was like the MakerDAO, you know, stability fee after a call with like 10 people on it. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Those governance calls. I was on that yep. I think like 1am our time, which is uh, pretty insane. We may have bet on one of those. I don't, I don't remember. Um, it's been a while, but switching to like, Switching to you, right? Like you've been in the space a long time. The space moves very fast. It takes a lot out of you, but you also learn a lot. How do you handle stress, mental health? How do you get away? How do you take breaks? How do you make sure that you're here for the long game? Yeah, uh, that, that's such an important point, man, because uh, there's a lot of burnout. And I think when it comes to volatile markets, there are a lot of people that get really, really emotional. So I think one important thing is to have interests outside of crypto, to have relationships outside of crypto. Most of my friends are in crypto. We love to talk about crypto all day, but it's also important to kind of take a break um, and kind of take a step back and really appreciate what we're trying to do here. Um, and usually the thing that helps me put things into perspective is just to zoom out. Um, so you, sure, you know, prices might be down a lot, but you know, what are we building here? Where do you think we're going? Usually that kind of, you know, that, that, that usually comforts me when, when, Markets started uh, start to not doing and start not to do so well. Is to kind of remember what the time horizon I'm playing here. You know, I'm not a scalp trader. I'm not even a trader. I'm not trying to trade on you know 15 minute or even four hour charts. I'm really looking at you know the the monthly to the yearly horizon. And once you do that, you filter out a lot of noise. But even then, you know, you, you know information can still get um, you know pretty overloaded. There's a lot of inputs going on. So um, yeah, I think just kind of take a break from crypto Twitter time to time. Um, you know, 
sign off Telegram every once in a while. I think um, just kind of signing out from crypto helps a lot. No, I'm, I'm with you there. You definitely got to take breaks. Definitely got to realize that you know, the 98th play that you're looking at of the week, you know, might not be worth just getting <laughs> six hours of sleep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Jason, I mean, looking at the space, like looking at other investors, whether it's in crypto or outside of crypto and project founders, like who's your idol in the space? Like, who do you look up to? Who do you have your tweet alerts on for? Who do you make sure that you go out of your way to read what they post? They may not even be that active. It might not even be somebody knows, but who do you look up to? Yeah, um, I wouldn't say I have idols, but I definitely have a lot of people I look up to in this space. Obviously, you yourself are one of them. You know, having built Delphi so early on and you know building fifty one percent research podcast oh, back in the day. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that, that that's you know stories like that. You know, seeing people come up that that's really inspiring to me. Um, I think from an investor perspective, I'm a big fan of what Paradigm's doing as well. Uh, I think seeing Dan Robinson's work on Uniswap V3 um, as one of the chief architects behind a project, that level of involvement is with projects is something that we aspire to as well and something that I'm always championing for. And you know, investors like the guys at Dragonfly, I speak with them a lot. I really appreciate how, uh, how Tom thinks about the space and how good they are at communicating very complex topics um, to a general audience. So I, I read every one of Hasib's blog posts. I read every one of Tom's blog posts. I mean, also the guys at Arca. Um, so they're very different investors uh, from, from your typical venture fund, given they're more of a liquid hedge fund. Um, but those guys are some of the smartest people in the space. So every time Jeff from Arca puts out a blog post about the market, uh, I, I definitely keep it on alert and I try to read every one of them. No, I, I really appreciate the kind words, Jason. 51% gave me flashbacks before we were to Adelphi, <laughs> but uh, it, it was fun. Um, but no, I, I agree with you. I mean, Dragonfly, Arca, uh, Paradigm are all incredible funds. I mean, Jeff at Arca is, has such a storied career on Wall Street that um, he really does bring a, a unique perspective kind of to the space. And I mean, you brought up another point with Paradigm, which is, I guess, their specific involvement in projects, right? Um, I mean, as you grow as an investor, you're, I guess, you know, it's not a like a mental debt thing, but you have a lot of portfolio companies to keep up with, right? But you also have a very knowledgeable take on the space and your advice is is worth it to projects, right? Your time is very valuable. How do you like allocate your time effectively to portfolio companies? And I guess, where is your favorite area to allocate your time? Like, is it in token econ? Is it in strategy? Is it in you know, finding a new CFO for a company, headhunting? Like, what, what, where do you drive the most value and how do you allocate your time? Yeah. So in terms of our portfolio companies, we support them in a few ways. Um, so we typically get incredibly involved, especially the earlier we are in the process, the more help the projects need. Uh, so in terms of the fundraising side, we help uh, you know structure the cap table. Um, for instance, the Alchemix investment, we kind of just help decide what funds to bring on, you know, what type of value add they can have. Um, and on the narrative building side, uh, or the distribution side, I should say, a lot of the projects are great product builders but they don't have the means to communicate that product to a wider audience and really bring in that critical mass of users. So that's something that we bring to our projects with you know, the podcast, with our uh, social media presence, with our strategic connections to different investors or different projects. We try to help these projects get distribution early on um, and quickly. I think that that's something that's, that's incredibly important. Um, and I think the third thing is just being there for the projects at all times. Um, so there was an incident where one of the projects we invested in had kind of a liquidity shortfall, and they really needed someone to just pluck, you know, five million dollars in the protocol right away. So, um, you know, just kind of pick up the phone at night, and then we were, we immediately got onto it. So, being there for our projects, you know, any time of the day, that's something that we pride ourselves in as well. Jason, long term, do you think the VC model exists? And I ask myself this question, given you know we run Delphi Ventures, but I mean, you know, just not to bring it back to me, but I mean, we launched an on-chain fund on Syndicate, like. I, I'm of the opinion that everything is going on chain. Everything will be driven by a community of investors, not say one or two people. But what's your take on, I guess, the VC model long-term? Yeah, I think back in 2017, when all these ICOs started happening, I was of the view that, okay, all the equity is going to be tokenized and VCs will die within a year. <laughs> and obviously that, that didn't work out and you know regulations come into play. But I do think um, VCs, even outside of crypto, have been evolving, right? If you look at A16Z, and not the crypto fund, but uh, the general A16Z, you know, all of them are financial advisors now, and um, they have a massive team, and they're you know a power distribution channel. And I think a lot of VC firms will you know become more service oriented, 
And the way I think about the discounts that VCs get, I think a lot of people in, in crypto, they think, okay, VCs are basically just buying tokens at a discount and dumping on the market. But the discount is the, is the price that projects pay for VCs for the services rendered. So over time, for VCs to really differentiate and succeed, you need to have you know, a bigger and bigger service arm. Um, and you start to see that in crypto already, where you know, Framework has Framework Labs. You know, obviously, Paradigm has the research team. And we're trying to kind of bulk up our, our portfolio support team as well. Um, and Pentara has the platform team. So all the funds are, are trying to build differentiated, a differentiated value add. And you know, I think you, you guys do it so incredibly well as well with your research arm, with your tokenomics designs. So I do think that's where VCs are headed, more kind of surface providers, less so, quote unquote, uh, just kind of capital deployers. No, that's, that's a really good point, Jason. It definitely is a, it's a cool evolution to see how capital gets allocated when you have a community of people around the world that are not only investors, but are investing their time and their knowledge and everything into a project. It, I mean, basically, a lot of the projects in the space are, are crowdfunded anyway. I mean, just with people's time and with their efforts. So it really is exciting to see. Just to close out, we have like five minutes left. Love to kind of learn, is there any book or any blog post or any advice you can give people that are just getting started in crypto who want to get up to speed extremely quickly? Um, if somebody wanted to get up to speed as fast as they possibly can in three months, what would be your advice? Yeah. Um, obviously, listen to this podcast and mine, uh, Block Crunch. Oh, man. You have a shameless, killer podcast, man. <laughs> shameless self-plug. Um, but you know the, the thing that I typically send to my friends is just the uh, Crypto Canon from A16Z, which is a compilation of articles from crypto. Um, for more kind of investor-oriented friends, I love to recommend them Crypto Assets by Chris Berniski and Jack Tatar. That's written back in 2017. So some of the topics discussed there are somewhat, um, I wouldn't say outdated, but there are newer models that have been proposed since then. But that book also helped me a lot in kind of helping me take the asset class seriously. Uh, from my ideological perspective, uh, I know a lot of people love to recommend Sovereign Individual. From a story perspective, a lot of people like to recommend Bitcoin Billionaires. So all those are great books. I love that. And also to close out, you know, we have some time left. Where do you think this whole space is going? Like, do you think that, like, what do you think in terms of timelines? And I trust me, I know we're going to get this totally wrong, but like, when do you <laughs> think we get to, you know, the full metaverse? When do you think Wall Street goes away? When do you think crypto hits a hundred trillion in, in, you know, AUM or sorry, in value? Like, how fast do you think crypto is going to move from here? And I mean, we've already come a long way. We've already grown really fast, but what would you look for in the next, you know, let's say one to three years? Yeah, I think pinning a specific time is very hard because humans tend to overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10. Um, but the signs I'm, lo I'm looking for is different types of people coming into the space. So the thesis that I have is crypto starts with speculators. Um, so you have a lot of local DGENs that are just yield farming and you know aping into random tokens and using all these protocols and seeding them with liquidity. That's the kind of crypto natives. And then it bleeds out into the next wave, which is the digital natives. So you have you know artists, uh, musicians that are um, coming into the space because of this NFT wave, and then finally you have the mainstream audience. So you have projects that are trying to maybe bridge liquidity to traditional markets. So Maple Finance, you know Goldfinch are examples of that. And I, I think that that's kind of how it's how it spreads, right? You look at people who are very different from ourselves. So people who are not very crypto native start to come into this space and become not just you know, investors in tokens or speculators in tokens, but actual users of products, that's a very promising sign for me. I love that, Jason. Um, always love hosting you, man. It's been incredible to see you grow within Spartan and personally and, and just crush it. So it's an honor to have you on. If you guys haven't checked out Jason's podcast um, and you don't follow him on Twitter, um, I, I can't take you seriously as a crypto person. I mean, you got to check it out. <laughs> Jason, thanks, Jason, thanks so much for coming on, man. It's been a blast. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate that. Thanks for bringing me on. Before we go, we want to again thank our sponsor for this episode, Kava. With a proven track record of delivering products safely, the Kava platform is DeFi's most trusted, scalable, and secure institutional-grade cross-chain engine. In addition to the protocols Kava and Hard, the Kava platform is launching Swap Protocol, a cross-chain AMM liquidity hub bridging DeFi, blockchains, and financial services to swap the world's largest assets and maximize yields across your entire portfolio. Try for yourself or learn more today by visiting kava.io. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the podcast. 
If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.